A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Welcome to all of our new listeners. There seem to be rather a lot of you in the past couple of weeks. And a special hello to our one listener in Iran, our two listeners in Iraq and our three listeners in Iceland. Uh, you're all very welcome. Tell us where you're listening by posting a review on iTunes. It also helps with their made-up chart. Uh, and tell your friends as well. Uh, the summer break is the perfect time to lie back on the beach, feel the sun in your face and relax while being told repeatedly that nobody knows what they're doing and the country is going to the dogs. Talking of people who don't know what they're doing, let me introduce this week's panel. Grant Tucker, the Times Deputy Diary Editor on who in their right mind would want to be PM. Philip Collins, Times Columnist on why Government of National Unity is a good idea, but won't happen. But first, Red Box Columnist Jane Merrick on why she's just left the Labour Party. So yeah, last week I quit the Labour Party. I gave up my party membership and my card, but I also left it, the party I've supported and voted for all my life. I left it behind ideologically. Under Jeremy Corbyn, its equivocation on anti-Semitism has become intolerable with its refusal to accept the internationally recognised definition. Jane, what made you, given that it's been a bumpy road, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership uh, so far, what, particularly for people who, who supported the party previously, what was it at this time that made this the straw that broke the camel's back? Well, actually, there were there have been many straws over the past few years. And I mean, I, and I'm... I've never been, I've made no secret the fact that I'm a critic of Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, I've supported Labour all my life, but I actually, I did join the Labour Party two years ago to, to save the party from Jeremy Corbyn. I wanted to vote for Angela Eagle, but I'm not an entryist. I have been a Labour supporter all my life. So people have accused me of just joining two years ago to get rid of Corbyn. No, I'm, I'm a genuine, I'm, Labour is in my blood. And ironically, those same people are the people who joined three years ago to get Corbyn. Yes, so exactly. It's, it's... And they voted Green in 2015. So yeah. it's ridiculous. But you know, there have been many straws. And actually, and I kept on thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop voting Labour, but I've got a great, fantastic local MP. I've got a, a good local council. I still believed in the Labour Party as a party of social justice and anti-racism. But also that people would say to me, if really good MPs who are fighting to save the Labour Party that, that I recognise can stay, and if Jewish MPs like Luciana Berger and Margaret Hodge can stay, then then non-Jewish members like me should stay too, to sort of have their back in a way. And that was a really com- compelling reason to stay. But actually this l- last few days, it's just that 
why does there have to be so much qualification on anti-Semitism? You know, Labour should be the party that is fighting anti-Semitism because it's coming back in Eastern Europe. It's coming back in such a scary way. I've listened to Holocaust survivors talk about how they're frightened again of the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe. And so Labour Party should be at the forefront of fighting this, not equivocating all the time and sort of not accepting a an international definition that everybody else accepts. So just in case people haven't totally followed all the details of this, there's the uh, this international uh, definition of anti-Semitism, which the Labour Party has accepted, but what they haven't accepted is all the examples that, yes. that sit alongside it. And I, I have to say, I find this bit baffling. I just don't know why. Yes. Just, just accept the whole thing. Yes. Unless you've got something that you're trying to... Uh, in some way equivocate about or leave yes. the door open to certain types of acceptable forms of anti-Semitism. And, and, and the excuse that people have come up with is, oh, we'll, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to criticise the government of Israel. But of course you can criticise the government of Israel. You can say that the nation-state bill passed last week was outrageous. You can criticise the shooting of unarmed Palestinian protesters. But but the, the definition does not sort of include that. It's It's things like questioning the very existence of Israel is anti-Semitic. Um, accusing Jewish people of being l- more loyal to Israel than their home country. Of course, that's anti-Semitic. I mean, Luciana Berger, you know, her, uh, her um, one of her trolls went to court and was jailed over that very issue. And actually, that's that's one of the things you see a lot of yes. MPs and other people in the public eye on Twitter who are Jewish. I spoke to David Baddiel about this. Yeah. He gets this all the time. Yes. When he tweets about anything, people come back and say, oh, you're more interested in Israel than you are in anything else. Uh, to which his answer is, no, I'm not. You know, and, and, mm. But he's, he's very good at taking it on. But it's yes. just extraordinary how that starts being normalised on social media. What do you make of this, Phil? Um, what is going on in the Labour Party? Well, I think the um, the attempt to, to have a new definition is so as to be more critical of Israel than is permitted under the internationally accepted definition. So I think there's definitely a desire to be um, more critical than everybody else in the world seems to find acceptable, which is a <laughs> terrible thing for a, an avowedly anti-racist party to do. Uh, but I think the, the, the position of the Labour Party is also complete, deeply wrapped up in its view on foreign policy and its view on capitalism. So it takes quite a long time to disentangle. Why is the Labour Party spending so much time making every effort to get to a position where it's possible to be anti-Semitic? And I think the the deeply tangled answer lies up in the fact of America. Anything that America does is considered to be beyond the pale by a certain type of left-wing person who now runs the Labour Party. And that's wrapped up with the the demonology of capitalism and also with America's role in the world. So they simply view enemies of America as friends first and foremost. And then they they take that through and the Palestine issue becomes a symbol of all of that. And and so their their hatred for what Israel does is wrapped up in all those ways. And it becomes a worldview. And it's very important to them, which is why it's quite central to the politics of the Labour Party, which is why I absolutely agree with Jane's um, strategy. And so this is you can't stay in a party that has this as a core belief. You simply can't and, and expect to re- remain a sort of noble political person. It's not acceptable. Doesn't it just show how bad Jeremy Corbyn is at politics, though? Mm. Even, if, even if he does believe that you should have included these four examples... Anybody, real politique, just nobody would have taken any notice if they just signed off the definition. Um, but instead, he wants to die in a ditch for four examples, which not a huge amount of people would care about, but it's made it a huge issue. But internally, they do care. It's become, it's, it's, it's taken it on on purpose within but the Labour Party. Isn't the obsession with Israel who may abuse human rights 
uh, but so do dozens of other countries around the world. Their obsession is itself anti-Semitic. The reason why they care so much is because it is a Jewish country and a pro-American country. Yes, and they are consciously taking on this question because it, it's such a touchstone within the Labour Party. So it's a, it's in a funny way an equivalent of Blair taking on Clause 4 nationalisation. He didn't need to do that. It was a deliberately provocative act to take that on. And it was a way of signalling to the world, in his case, to the country, um, this is the type of Labour Party I am going to lead. Well, in his own way, that's what Corbyn's people are doing. This is the type of Labour Party we are. But isn't the, isn't the difference that the, the, part of the reason for Clause 4 was to make the Labour Party more electable in a country that was sceptical about the old ideas of trade unions? And yeah, Jeremy what, Cor- what kind of old-fashioned nonsense <laughs> is this? <laughs> is this I what know, we've, we've sunk to on the Red Box podcast? Yeah, we're talking about trying to become the, the government. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, whereas, I mean, I just find it absolutely... So there's a poll, the Jewish News had a Comrades poll uh, this week, and it showed that 31% of people think that Margaret Hodge was right to call Jeremy Corbyn anti-Semitic. And when this broke uh, on Monday night, there were some people on Twitter saying, oh, it's only... It means 69% of people think he isn't. <laughs> and I just... What, what, where are we in the world where the supporters of a political party think it's fine that a third of the public <laughs> think their leader is a racist? Mm. And it's also about instincts as well, is that when Margaret Hodge rounded on Jeremy Corbyn after that vote, the Speaker's chair, she was completely understandably so angry, but the response was to to sort of threaten her with disciplinary action. And the, and the swiftness of the response yeah. as well, when it's taken years to get rid of people like Ken And she, she was sent a letter telling her off within 12 hours. Yes. Amazing. Uh, addressed to Ms Hodge, not Dame Margaret as well, which is sort of the final, you know, insult. Um, and it's just, it's exactly, it's where his instincts are. It's not, as you said, Glenn, it's about bad politics as well but the bad perception is he should be he should be encouraging he's really offended the jewish community he didn't listen to them when this was was being drawn up he should be reaching out to the jewish community and saying okay let's talk about this not offending and not disciplining one of the most senior veteran jewish mps there is a, a separate political question though which is your decision to leave the labor party now i happen to agree with that but but there is a perfectly rational counter case that lots of people put to me, and I'm sure to you, which is that you shouldn't leave, you should stay and fight, because if you abandon the Labour Party to people like that, mm-hmm. then a institution which could be a contender for power is completely lost to people who you hate. So therefore, mm-hmm. as unpalatable as it is, it's far better to stay and to fight and to win the party back. And in due course, the party will come back, they say, because the left didn't have a plan for getting it, it was just happenstance, it just mm-hmm. fell into their lap. And the same thing will happen in reverse one day. Yeah. It'll come back and you won't be there to receive it. You know, that is the torment that, that I've been through. And it's not like I'm just going to, you know, vote Lib Dem tomorrow or join the Tories tomorrow. I, there isn't another political party I'd want to vote for. And I'm now politically homeless. And I haven't left it lightly. I haven't given up voting Labour lightly. But I, and I, and I completely respect um, Labour MPs who want to fight and get the party back. And I totally respect that. But I think for me, you know, I'm not an MP. I can't sort of, for me, the most powerful thing that I could do was was to leave because I felt impotent. You know, I had this impotent rage that that there was. I was just silently condoning what was going on, and I think that was a more active thing that I could have done rather than to just carry on condoning this policy. And the party is fundamentally lost now. I don't, there is no coming back for the Labour Party. They've got four hundred thousand momentum thugs running it. The last bastion is the parliamentary party. I mean, they're not all thugs. I mean, I think, I think <laughs> actually, your definition of thugs is for the purposes of just playing devil's advocate for a minute. Actually, I think one of the interesting things, and what this might, the impact this might have on the momentum, you know, 
arrivals uh, into the party. So on the one, you've got the very old left, the Jeremy Corbyn, Seamus Milne, uh, you know, hard-line view against Israel left. But then you've also got these young people who came in thinking, oh, this is all cool and groovy. We like, we, you know, we like... Uh, Literally communists. We like mm. the... Uh, not those people, but the people who were, who were swept up yeah. in Corbyn Mania. And they actually thought, this is politics which is being done differently. Uh, he, we, we love the EU and we like people of all races. And they must now be looking at the him and thinking, what the hell is going... Why... I mean, even if they don't believe that he is personally racist and anti-Semitic, what the hell is going on in this party that I joined that there's even a debate about how anti-Semitic it's okay that to be? That is the very intriguing thing, isn't it? At what point Corbyn's support starts to desert him on, on this issue, but also on the European Union issue. Because I think you're right. I went to the um, Momentum conference last year, the Labour Party conference. It was far more full of interesting arguments and, and conversation than the actual Labour Party conference was. And there's lots and lots of people in Momentum who just joined up because they're interested in politics. Mm. And they have they, no loyalty to the Labour Party. They, they, well, they don't, but they're very interested in it and they they would style themselves as left of center left wing and they see this as a, a good vehicle and i don't want to disparage them because when i was 23 24 i was full of ideas about politics too and, and a bit of that is, is fantastic for and, and the rest have. of politics is so depressing having young people who are engaged oh, yeah. is brilliant absolutely right but uh, I, I wonder just final point i wonder when they they predominantly those people will be very strongly pro-european it's mm. increasingly evident that jeremy corbyn is not and that disjunction has to play out sometime. I mean, I would like, you know, it's uh, the, the future of the Labour Party, I think, lies in someone like Angela Rayner, who, who would never be called a Blairite, but who has a power to sort of bring together the, the sort of the new new members that came in under Jeremy Corbyn, but also unite, so I think the kind of soft left, I think she would be a good, a good future leader. One of the standout moments of the election campaign last year was where she launched Labour's education manifesto in front of Jeremy Corbyn. And she stood up in front of all these TV cameras and praised Tony Blair for setting up Short Stop. Yes. And I thought that's a really smart yeah. political brain who knows you do it here in front of him and he's got to sort of got to go along with it and clap along as well. Uh, and of course, um, if you are interested in Angela Rayner, you can listen to uh, the podcast we did with the Labour Party conference last year, which is at her backstory is absolutely fascinating. Mm. I think she's absolutely one to watch. I'm sure we'll return. I really hope we don't return to anti-Semitism again because I hope the Labour Party gets it act, its act together. Uh, but I suspect they won't. But let's move on. And this is Phil Collins. A government of national unity is a good idea which has no hope at all of coming off. At the end of the term of Parliament, Britain is close to ungovernable. There's no obvious way forward, and that includes, unfortunately, a national government. This is an idea that sort of bubbled around. It sort of began in the sort of highbrow newspaper columns and then started being pushed by MPs, mainly ones who thought they were losing the argument. <laughs> they thought this is the only way to get what they wanted. Just explain what a uh, government of national unity would would mean. Well, would it? We've had them before, um, 1931, First World War to 1916, and then the, the war coalition uh, from 1940. And it's the the bringing together of people from more than one party, usually all three parties, into a government which then stands for the nation. It's non-partisan, non-party government, and it has happened on those three occasions at a time of crisis. And it's happened when we've had a very clear sense of what we needed to do to get out of the, the crisis. And wartime being the obvious example, nobody disputes that there's a crisis when you're <laughs> at war. And nobody disputes what you're aiming to, to achieve, which is to win the war. And that sounds very simplistic, but they're critical determinants of there being the conditions for a national government. And the very reasons we need a national government, which is that we're in a terrible crisis in which everyone's fighting, and we don't know what on earth we want to achieve, are the reasons why there can't be one. Because quite a lot of the people in the Brexit argument don't really agree that this is a proper crisis. 
nobody was sitting there in London with a Luftwaffe in the sky saying, I think this might be an opportunity, yeah. you know. Cheer up. <laughs> yeah, it's Sunny Uplands are coming. <laughs> this, Stop talking the Blitz down. That's right. This could be wonderful. Um, whereas now you've got people still thinking this could be marvellous when we sign all these trade deals with New Zealand and, you know, Pacific Islands or someone. Um, and also we don't have any agreed sense of what the objective is. And so that makes uh, coming to an agreement on a national unity government very, very difficult. But the, the reason it's come up as an issue is because, of course, there seems to be no majority for any course of action. So you say anything we might do on negotiating our future with the European Union, and well, we can't do that because we haven't got a majority for it, but we can't do the other thing or the other thing. So we're stuck. We're stuck. We've got a crisis and a problem and no evident solution. Another general election? I think it's unlikely because for the reasons we've just been given, that there's a lot of people, including all of the Conservative Party, who don't want to risk a Jeremy Corbyn uh, government. So I think they'll probably, or probably Tory MPs will stop just short of forcing a general election. I mean, all of this is subject to the caveat that they're so infused with the ideology on Europe that they might just do something completely off the wall. But I suspect they won't. I suspect they'll stumble on, as they are, and... Then it's just a question when they come back from the long break, which faction is prepared to compromise? Somebody has to give way a little bit, otherwise we are genuinely stuck. It was striking in the uh, the last full week in Westminster when there were a couple of big votes and, and one of the threats that was supposedly being used against the Tory Remainer rebels who were threatening to vote against the government was, oh, if you're not careful, we'll end up with a vote of no confidence in a general election. And this was, I mean, it just went to show how much faith even the Tory whips have in Theresa May's ability to fight a general election. This is seen as like the worst possible thing <laughs> they could right. have. I mean, I imagine that as an argument, you know, during Tony Blair's uh, premiership probably wasn't as, you know, it didn't have the same, well, it have a general election, you win again, it doesn't matter. Exactly. But this, this idea that this is now so ingrained in the Tory party that Theresa May would be so bad at fighting another general election, it's used as a sort of stick to beat. And even when she said at the 1922 committee she was going to go walking again, which is, she went walking in Wales, which she called the election, and they all started screaming, no, no, <laughs> don't do it, in front of her. This is yeah. now like a joke, the, yeah. the idea of her calling another election. It, it is. It's, it is quite a threat. When, when Bear in mind, I, I do have some sympathy for Theresa May because she doesn't have a majority. I mean, you might say that's partly her fault, but nevertheless, she doesn't. Well, it's entirely her fault. Well, it's not entirely her she fault. She called but... an election she didn't need to call, okay. and then well, she lost the majority. Okay, it's her fault. But, <laughs> it, uh, but it's still a fact. It's a fact she now lives with. Tony Blair had a majority of 179, so you, you were in a position, happy position where you could ignore the likes of Jeremy Corbyn, and you didn't have to worry about um, losing any votes. So she's in a very, very difficult position to get anything through. And at the same time, she's trying to engineer the most complex administrative task of British government since the Second World War. Now, it's no wonder it's a mess. The fact that it's a mess was one of the reasons why conservative Remainers like me voted to stay. Mostly so that I didn't have to come every week and do this podcast about the bloody European Union. If you were to just say as a conservative, do you mean conservative the small, small C? C. Small, small C. Small C. I mean, I, I think the, the, the truly conservative position on Europe was not to care about it and to carry on blindly as we were. Just leave it well alone. Just leave it well alone. <laughs> Stop it. Don't mess. You don't know what. You don't know what will crawl out from under it. Grant, in, in terms of trying to piece together a, a government of national unity, do you think there is a, a majority for the sort of centrist Tories? Labour moderates on the back benches, maybe some, you know, some Lib Dems or something. Does that all add up to a, 
a majority for sort of softest possible Brexit? No, because you couldn't even rely on the Lib Dems turning up to vote. So that, <laughs> that would be one, one of the problems. But I think, uh, as uh, two other guests have touched on, both the parties are very ideological at the moment. And there's no way even on the fringes of those parties there are even enough numbers to get together to do this. Neither, quite frankly, is there the talent or quality. Okay. I really don't think there are that many talented centrists in Parliament. Not that I think there are any particularly talented right-wingers or left-wingers either, but... What was ridiculous at the weekend was the sort of news that, that Vince Cable, when he missed that vote, was at a dinner talking about an anti-Brexit centrist party, not realising that he's actually supposed to be the leader already of I an anti-Brexit I know, nobody's told him. He's too busy plotting against party. the leader, that's why. <laughs> exactly, he's plotting against his own leadership. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I wonder whether instead of... I mean, yeah, I agree, it's never going to... I think it would be the worst thing that would happen and it probably won't happen, even though we are in this state of crisis that there will be a sort of a national unity government in all but name where if there is a no deal, if everything collapses, then Parliament, as Dominic Grieve said, I think last week, he talked about reasserting its authority and you do just have this broad coalition of people who want to... Yeah, to I, although the, the problem was Theresa May couldn't get her Brexit war cabinet to agree. There's only about six of them. So then she opened it up to the whole cabinet. She couldn't really get them to agree. She lost her. The idea that you then, you're then sort of trying to get 650 people to agree the negotiating strategy seems even more problematic. You might not see a, a, a unity government, but what you might see is a third party emerge. And there's two things coming uh, heads uh, at the moment is going to happen in October. You're going to have to obviously have Theresa May negotiating with the EU. Uh, so you might have the centrist getting very angry that she sides with the Brexiteers. And also you've got the Labour Party who might introduce deselection. And then you've got, that's two groups of very angry people who are actually very ideologically similar. So you actually might get a third party rather than a unity government. Yeah, I, I don't think the current political formulation is sustainable. I think it will break in one way or another. There will be an attempt. And that's not that's not to say I think it will therefore succeed because the barriers to it are very formidable. But I definitely think something will happen to, to break it. I think it'll get, it'll get more interesting if and when we leave the European Union, which, by the way, I still think we will. I still think the most likely outcome of this is that the, the, the logjam will be broken because I think Theresa May will get a shell of a sort of an almost deal that doesn't look like a deal to anybody who knows anything about deals, but will be something she brings back. And that will then confront MPs with a really serious problem, which is, do I vote for this wildly unsatisfactory thing I've got in front of me with the risk that I therefore leave us with no deal at all? And that will be the, the way they try to frame it, I'm sure. And at that point, if you're an MP who voted Remain but doesn't want to crash the country and has constantly said that no deal will be a catastrophe, you're probably thinking, I ought to vote for this. Mm. And, that, and that's where you're sort of essentially, you end up with your national unity in the national interest. In a sense, yes. Yeah. But it's just organised within the existing and be, It's going to be interesting to see to what extent, that, how hard yeah. Number 10 pushed the idea to Labour MPs. Do you want to go through the voting lobbies with J Jacob Rees-Mogg and push the country off a cliff? That's right, exactly. And that's the, the so it's that faction of Labour MPs. They've got to think too about where they're prepared to compromise. It'll be interesting to see what um, happens uh, in the autumn. Let's move on though. We'll be back after this short break. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Red Box Podcast. I'm joined in the studio by Jane Merrick, Philip Collins, and this is Grant Tucker. As the parliamentary term comes to a close, Theresa May is amazingly still Prime Minister. Despite losing six cabinet ministers in the past year, including a foreign secretary and Brexit secretary, she's clung on to power. But how much longer has the Maybach got before the men in grey suits get rid of her? And who in their right mind would want to replace her? I think you've got that wrong, Grant. Is it not seven? Six, I think it is, but... Hang on. So there's Amber Rudd. Well, let's start at the beginning. It was Priti Patel, Michael Fallon, Damien Green, Justin Greening, Amber Rudd... Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson and David Davis. David Davis, seven. seven. You can't Gosh, even count. can't get my facts right. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll gloss over that. We'll gloss over that. I mean, it is sort of amazing that she's still there, but as I think as um, Francis Elliott, my colleague on the Times lobby team, um, said once, it's totally unsustainable, but it's just going to go on and on and she's on. She's just going to keep on stumbling on and stumbling on. And I think it's going to get to the situation where actually you asked earlier, Phil, who is going to compromise? And I speak to a few MPs, spoke to a few MPs last week. Uh, I think it's going to be the Eurosceptics. I think they finally have realised this is the only chance we've got. We've been campaigning for 20 years to get out of the EU. If we keep pushing our luck, we might get a second referendum or the Lords might block it or something like that. And they're just going to take what they can now, hopefully then kick her out and get a new leader who can push an even harder Brexit. But they're going to take what they can now and push through some kind of awful deal with Theresa May. Is the risk with that plan not that they take what they can now they remove Theresa May and somebody who doesn't agree with them ends up becoming a leader. But then at least they still, they, they can, still, that's their European opinion, they can still it. claim that victory, which they've been campaigning on for 30, 20 years. So, yeah. And so who, when do you think this might happen? What's the sort of time scale on the men in grey suits? As soon as we legally leave in March, I think then they'll move and swoop in on her. Do you both agree with that? I think that's entirely plausible of that. Yeah, I think... Um, that's probably right. That there, is, there certainly is a group of Brexiteers who think the thing to do is to get out and then start the negotiation of chipping away at the transitional deal. I think that's one one viable strategy for them. I certainly think that once we're out legally, the, t- the clock is ticking on her premiership, isn't it? Because what's the point of her anymore from their point of view? So I think it's probably pretty pretty soon after that. But then they'll have to make a calculation. What's the optimal moment to change the prime minister in the electoral cycle? If you assume that a new prime minister would want a while at least to set out some kind of credentials, you don't. how long do you want? What's the perfect moment for that person? So they might delay, but only for that reason, not because they won't ha- have ample reason to want to go for it. But the, the next person, whoever that might be, Sajid Javid, 
Jeremy Hunt, Michael Gove. Brexiteers don't really have a candidate, not a, not a proper one. Well, they've got Jacob Rees-Mogg, haven't they? I mean, yeah, that's why I, I repeat what I just <laughs> said a moment ago. <laughs> I mean, don't if, have a if, proper if he one. ever gets into the to, into the wider country vote, I mean, I think Jeremy Hunt is interesting because he's he's played this quite clever game of being a Remainer, but now he's rebranding himself yeah. as quite sort of Brexity. Um, and I think Dominic Raab as well, although you know, I mean, he's sort of very untested and is obviously much more pro-Brexit, but. He's kind of like the kind of Brexit version of David Cameron in a way, and he sort of looks really smooth. He's, you know, he's got quite a good background in terms of, you know, a backstory and, and career in the law. And but he has this sort of Brexit edge as well. And it might be just enough for the for the Tory party in the country. And if you spent a year or so in the cabinet on the front line of Brexit yes. and it has delivered some sort of success, then that might I be think it. he'll be mm. so tainted by the deal, whatever deal that is, that it, I think that him taking this job, I don't even know if he realises it, but the party I don't think will be accept or like the deal very much and therefore he's tainted with that forever. I also agree with you that nothing is normal in politics anymore and it doesn't <laughs> have to be one of the great offices of state. The name which I've heard quite a few times recently is Penny Mordaunt, Brexiteer. Mm. She's got hinterland. She's got hobbies. She's interesting. She's she got a backstory. <laughs> she's on splash. She was in the Royal Navy. Uh, she swore in Parliament. They, 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 she's got lots of very interesting aspects. And she was a Brexiteer. Mm. And she's not very well tested. She's in Diffid. But um, it's a name I'm hearing. And mm. the Brexiteers seem to like her. And they're already looking at next year and who's coming up next. I think if they were electing a leader of the opposition, then she might be in with a shout. But I think they'll come to their senses and they realise in the end... You need a prime minister who people have heard of, at least. And I doubt they'll go there. They are talking about her. So there you know, all sorts of names. That Tom Tugendhat's name crops up in several mm. dispatches, yeah. doesn't it? Um, there's all sorts of names, which only goes to show that there's no outstanding candidate. Yeah. Um, I mean, John, Johnny Mercer is quite a good tip, although I've just seen he's signed up to the, the hunt, a celebrity version of Hunted, you know, the Channel 4 thing. And I just I mean, Kay Burley being chased through the woods. <laughs> yes. I just think that's a bad, a bad move if you want to be a leader of a party. But yeah, I mean, we've just heard. Well, it's an unconventional one. I mean, how do you know it's a bad move? No one's ever tried it before. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's what Macmillan did. But uh, you know, the Tim Dorries did the different jungle. type. Yeah, that's yeah. True. And now she's not on the list of runners and riders. Those yeah. two things. And Anthony Eden was on Love Island in their 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, what about the the idea that when we leave in March next year, assuming that is what happens, and Theresa May has got some sort of deal, she will be at her maximum mm. high point having done the thing that even basically she didn't really think was yes. entirely possible why would she give up without a fight at that point well that's the thing about Theresa May that's is, there is a counter argument that she's bloody dogged in that sense that that she's fought an election almost lost it but she's still here more than a year later she's lost all these cabinet ministers but she's still here and it's just this kind of almost something that you admire about the kind of the, it is a robotic way I mean she was terrible in the factory yesterday talking about how she sort of loved cooking because you can not only prepare the food but also eat it who knew and, and, she, and she does the revelation it. I've been putting it all in the bin <laughs> so I just made a lovely cake and then put it outside for the birds it's just the joy of preparation isn't it <laughs> But but who needs a prime minister who's good at you know who's good at recipes? It's ridiculous. She has just got this kind of managerial doggedness that maybe you do need to get through. And and she if she does achieve Brexit, and if it is a sort of an almost deal that everybody can almost get behind, then maybe she will think, okay, well I'll just carry on. I've got a plan for her. I think she'd be ill advised to think she can carry on, though she may well think she she can. I think what she should do is let's assume she does get a deal, which she may not, but assume she does. The day after she gets a deal, I think she should announce her resignation for a year on 
and say, I've got, well, I want these three things I'm going to achieve before I go. And this is why I want to stay as prime minister. Mm. But that's the moment I go. I'll go a moment of my own choosing. And that gives the, my successor plenty of time to bed in because I don't want to fight the next election. And that way she has a chance of leaving at a time of her own choosing entirely with some kind of a success behind her and then some sort of small legacy, which isn't just Brexit. Now, there's lots of reasons why that won't happen, but it would be perfectly, it's all plausible. And it, that would be a sort of not quite triumphant exit, but a lot better than you ever thought she'd be capable of. And that, I, I would do that if I was her. But that's, I mean, that's a great idea, but does it not risk the sort of, um, you know, it, that would be the first year of, of us being, well, the sort of transition period. And actually, when you need to have a, a government focusing on on Brexit and sort of managing the country, you're going to have basically Tory leadership contest over a year where everyone would be fighting and sort of That's spending true. time on that That's rather true. than actually the business of governing. It would be an audition for the whole period. Mm. for the, But then that would also be true if she didn't say that and she yes. just tried to soldier on. Yeah. So th- there is a True. prospect she might just be toppled immediately and we avoid it that way. But mm-hmm. if she's going to try and stay on, I think she needs to try and manage it. Because I was with Blair when he announced his resignation. There's lots of downsides to doing it. But the upside, which we didn't really kind of foresee, but it turned out to be the case, was it gives you a deadline. It gives you a sense of desire to get things done. And um, it really pushes, it really speeds things up. So I think her only hope of surviving at all again is to do that otherwise it's just constant warfare isn't it mm. so i spoke to somebody who's uh, in government who's worked closely with her and uh, i said the trouble is if she gets this deal and she's at the peak of her powers no, no normal normal politicians don't just give up power and just walk away and they said yeah but she's not a normal politician and it's entirely mm. possible that she's already made up her mind the exact yeah. date that she's going to go mm. and just hasn't told anyone because that's not in her nature to mm. um so if you're if you're listening, Prime Minister, do get in touch. Let us know the date so I don't book, book any holidays. Uh, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid, this week. Uh, you can subscribe to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device and wherever you get your podcast. Uh, apologies for my cough. But thanks to Grant Tucker, Jay Merrick, Phil Collins, and for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. 